From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As the impact of the Democratic takeover of Capitol Hill emerges, it's clear that there's a new game in town for advocates of environmental protection. This is no longer just about playing defense on environmental issues. Uh, for years, environmental battles here in Congress had been about stopping things. Well, now, those who are interested in a more environmental agenda, instead of stopping things, they have a chance to try to start something. They get a chance to play a little offense for a change. And voters seem to be connecting the dots between energy and environmental security faster than many politicians. If you look at those voters who voted for the Democratic candidate but considered voting for the Republican, the number one concern they had about the Republicans was that they did nothing about the oil companies and the high gas prices. The environment, energy, and the midterm elections this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The midterm elections not only tipped the balance of power to the Democrats in Congress, they also shifted the political terrain in a number of state houses. And these changes might make America a little greener. California Democrat Nancy Pelosi is poised to become the next Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. Tops on her agenda, clean energy alternatives to oil imports. When we talk about reducing our dependence on foreign oil. When we talk about that, we talk about alternative energy. It's not just about drill, drill, drill. In this program, we'll look into whether the Democrats can deliver on their energy agenda as we look at the election and the environment. Who's out, who's in, and what they're likely to do. Living on Earth's Washington correspondent Jeff Young is with us. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Steve. And from Los Angeles, our West Coast Bureau Chief Ingrid Lobat. Hello. Hi, Steve. So let's start in Washington with you, Jeff. Uh, This election really shook the ground there. So how does it change the landscape for the, the issues of the environment and energy? I'd say the best way to put it is that uh, this is no longer just about playing defense on environmental issues. Uh, For years, environmental battles here in Congress had been about stopping things, Uh, stopping the oil exploration in the Arctic refuge, uh, stopping offshore drilling, stopping changes to major laws like uh, Clean Air Act, Endangered Species Act. Well, now those who are interested in a more environmental agenda, instead of stopping things, they have a chance to try to start something. They, They get a chance to play a little offense for a change. Yeah, and they've got two fields to play on. There's the House and the Senate. What should we watch for there on the environment in the Senate? Well, I would say keep your eyes on the Senate Environment Committee. A very big change in power. The chair of that committee will go from Oklahoma Republican James Inhofe to California Democrat Barbara Boxer. And I challenge you to find any two lawmakers who are more diametrically opposed when it comes to their view on the environment. These two pretty much uh, define the opposite poles of thinking here. And uh, one example that springs to mind is climate change. Yeah, Jeff, I remember Senator Imhoff's statement. He's really outspoken uh, as a climate change skeptic. So let's just dip into the archives for a moment for a little audio from one of those hearings. Let me just once again state my belief that uh, global warming is uh, an alarmism, and it's it's a type of a it is type of a hoax. The climate alarmism we hear in the media about impending planetary doom has taken on a striking resemblance to the classic story of Chicken Little. So Senator Inhofe thinks global warming is a hoax. What about Senator Boxer? Well, she thinks it's a real threat, and she is very outspoken on the need for the Bush administration to do more about climate change. And uh, she's also very angry with the administration on other things. For example, Superfund, the program that's supposed to clean up toxic waste sites. She says it's out of money, and we need to reinstate a tax on industry to pay for cleaning up toxic sites. Uh, She also wants to find out more about how programs like that are operating under the EPA, for example. She says uh, the administration is been withholding important information about things like contaminated sites around the country, and I expect she'll have hearings looking into that. And in the House, who are the key players there to watch? I would focus on the Resources Committee. I think that's the most striking change on the House side. West Virginia Democrat Nick Rahal is going to be taking over from California Republican Richard Pombo. 
that's a major shift in uh, the paradigm there. Uh, Pombo had pretty much become the boogeyman for environmentalists. It seemed like just about any bill that would have environmentalists up in arms would have Mr. Pombo's name on it. He tried to weaken the Endangered Species Act. He wanted to drill for oil in the Arctic. He wanted more offshore drilling. It even once proposed selling off uh, parts of national parks. So now Pombo's out. Not only did he lose the chair, he lost his seat. And uh, pretty much all of those ideas, I think, go out the door with him. So Ingrid, tell us, what, what happened in that race? You covered the Pombo contest. Well, yeah, as as established and as well-liked as the Pombo family is in in his California Central Valley district, that district was just changing around him. It's becoming more liberal. There are fewer ranchers. There are more immigrants from India. There are also more Latinos registering to vote. And some of the voters I talked with told me that they resented Mr. Pombo's support for the president's policy in Iraq. The war was unpopular among some in the district. But most of all, I think, is what Jeff has been talking about. It's Pombo's outspokenness on the need to to take on the nation's most important environmental laws. He really led the charge against the environmental agenda, you could say. And that made him the target of what I think may have been an unprecedented campaign, at least for the group Defenders of Wildlife, which led the charge. They decided they wanted to get this guy out. They spent more than a million dollars. They organized buses of people to go door to door in his district, even some of them who lived outside the district. Uh, They spent all this money on TV ads. And I think that they can take some credit for what is a pretty big defeat, a chairman with seven terms in Congress. Yeah, and, and I'd add the, the environmental groups here in Washington are not shy about taking credit for that. They're, they're flexing their muscles and uh, saying, this is a message to anyone who thinks about uh, tinkering with environmental protection. If you take on environmental protections, we're going to take on you. Now, Ingrid, who's uh, new in Congress from the West? As I understand it, there are a number of, of new members that have pretty strong environmental records. Who comes to mind? Yeah, some of them will be quite a striking contrast. I think many listeners will have heard of that Montanans chose for the Senate John Tester, an organic farmer who grows lentils and peas and alfalfa and also speaks very skeptically about free trade. People in southern Arizona just chose a 36-year-old, a woman, to represent them, someone, uh, Gabrielle Giffords, who the Sierra Club calls an environmental champion. She has a record in her state legislature on water and climate change issues. She wants to pay people to defray the cost of putting solar panels on homes. She wants to increase mileage standards for cars. And she also lists a new national commitment to addressing global warming as a priority for hers. And then there's the man who defeated Richard Pombo, Jerry McNerney. He'll be the first alternative energy expert in Congress. He's a wind energy engineer. So uh, little by little, these changes altered the discussion on clean energy in Congress, I think. Now, while the Democrats were romping in much of the country, Republicans won big with Arnold Schwarzenegger in California. Ingrid, uh, why was that and what might it have to do with the environment? Yeah, it wasn't strange that Governor Schwarzenegger was reelected here. Moderate Republicans have often done well in California. We had Governor Pete Wilson. We had Governor Duke Majin. And once Governor Schwarzenegger moved towards more moderate stances in the latter part of his term, in particular championing uh, climate change measures and really continuing to make California a leader on that issue, there really wasn't any doubt uh, that he was going to win reelection. And that sort of Republican has always been popular in California. And, uh, you know, there are moderate pro-environment Republicans who are now saying, hey, that's the lesson from this election. We've got to start pushing that kind of uh, pro-environment Republican moderate candidate if we're going to uh, recover from this uh, disaster on election night. And uh, presumably, if they follow that route, that makes the environment a uh, sort of common ground for possible bipartisan action. Now, there was a multi-million dollar campaign to tax oil to finance uh, alternative energy that went down to defeat there in California, Prop 87. What happened? That was uh, financially, I think it was the biggest campaign uh, in the country this year, the largest initiative in California history. One of California's most prominent environmentalists, Stephen Bing, sunk $50 million of his own money into this measure to tax oil companies and fund alternative energy. And the oil companies buried Bing's money in $100 million in TV ads against the tax. I caught up with Scott McDonald, spokesman for the no side at the GOP election bash in Beverly Hills, and he blamed this huge huge uh, waste of money, I guess you could say, on the initiative's backers. These people have could have spent $57 million on something constructive, and they didn't, and so they need to answer that. We need alternative energy. We are all about alternative energy. It is not a vote on that. Now, Ingrid, how did voters respond to other initiatives involving the environment? 
Yeah, also on the clean energy front in Washington state, that became the latest place to require that a portion of the state's electricity come from renewable power, 15 percent by 2020. Voters in several states decided to limit the government's power to take private property for things like urban renewal when that property is going to be given over to another private party like a builder. And these measures were very successful. They passed in nine states. But where voters were asked to pass something more sweeping, let's say, for example, your local government uh, downzones you. They decide uh, they no longer want five-acre ranchettes in your area, and you were planning to rely financially on subdividing your property into five-acre parcels when you get older. Several measures around the West would have allowed you to collect money from the government for that loss of value. But those measures tended to go down. They went down in California, Washington, even in Idaho, Steve, a very conservative state traditionally. But in Arizona, voters said yes to that. And in other environment-related initiatives, in perhaps a preemptive move against animal rights activists, Georgia voters decided to enshrine hunting and fishing in their constitution. And Steve, in Arizona, voters decided to possibly try to fend off factory farms by banning so-called gestation crates for sows. Let's go back to Washington for a moment, uh, Jeff, and back to the Congress. Now, there's another thing the Democrats have criticized Republicans about, and that is that there's just not been enough oversight of environmental programs and agencies that special interests have been able to get in there and and write the rules and, and do things that maybe put money in people's pockets rather than protecting the environment. What are the Democrats going to do about this now that they're in control of both houses of Congress? Yeah, that has been a persistent theme that this was a rubber stamp Congress, didn't really exercise oversight. I think you can expect more vigorous oversight from people like Senator Boxer in the Senate's Environment Committee. In the House Energy Committee, keep an eye on John Dingell, the veteran congressman. He's returning to that position, that chairmanship that he held 12 years ago. And back then, he was very famous as a very tough investigator, really digging into what the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection Agency were up to. And uh, then there's the House Government Reform Committee. California Democrat Henry Waxman is taking over there. So I think we're going to see more hearings, more investigations into things like climate change. Were scientists censored when they tried to uh, ring the alarm bells on climate change? I think they'll want to know more about how the rules were written for, say, mercury emissions from power plants. How did the Bush administration come up with its energy policy? And, uh, you know, who was holding the pen when these, these rules were written? So speaking about climate change for a moment, any chances we'll see action on climate change with the Democrats in the majority? I think you can say safely that there are now more votes in both the House and the Senate for a cap on greenhouse gas emissions. However, it's still a steep uphill climb to pass any meaningful legislation until there's a change at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue. Until the White House signals that they're ready to entertain this idea, I don't see those bills moving. Jeff Young is our Washington correspondent, and Ingrid Lobet is our West Coast Bureau Chief. Thank you both. You're welcome. You're welcome. Coming up, the environmental issue that made people switch from Republican to Democrat. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. During election season, people across the country heard many campaign ads with a common theme, energy. The price of gas is killing my farm. 86 bucks to fill up my pickup. I'm dumping my profit into the fuel tank. For farmers like me, 
the cost of gas is the difference between getting by and getting left behind. In Colorado, the future is building wind farms and wheat fields. But in Washington, Congress works for big oil. But in exit polls, energy didn't show up in the top five most important issues on voters' minds. So how big a factor was energy in the environment in deciding midterm election winners? We decided to ask that question of Mike Bosian, the associate vice president of the Greenberg-Quinlan-Rosner research firm. It influenced it very significantly. While it may not appear as the number one issue voters talk about and say that they voted on, when you look at the data in the post-election surveys, you can see it was very significant. And I'll, I'll point to one piece of data that's telling. We did a survey immediately after the election. And if you look at those voters who voted for the Democratic candidate but considered voting for the Republican, the number one concern they had about the Republicans was that they did nothing about the oil companies and the high gas prices. The voters learned about and were extremely frustrated that their Congress and their president had given large tax breaks to the oil companies at a time when gas prices were extremely high and the oil companies were making billion-dollar profits. That was one piece. A second piece was the positive side, the investment in alternative energy. And the voters believe that we are decades behind on investing in alternative energy and ending dependence on foreign oil, and they haven't seen the commitment that they're interested in on that issue. So in a way, it looks like your data is telling us that voters may well be ahead of politicians in linking environmental issues such as as energy and alternative energy with core issues such as the war and the economy. Very much so. Uh, We've been seeing this for actually a few years now where we do focus groups where we talk to a dozen voters at a time across the country. And for several years now, we have heard them talk about renewable energy and, and wonder why we've had the technology for decades. Why haven't we set a course towards a renewable energy future? And the voters see this both as a secure, important to security and ending our dependence on foreign oil and our reliance on unstable countries, particularly those in the Middle East. At the same time, they naturally see renewable energy as a job creator. At a time when many of our manufacturing jobs have been outsourced, they have a can-do spirit, a belief in America's technological know-how that we can solve problems, that we can solve the renewable energy problem and create good jobs as a result. Mike Bosian, tell me of any particular races where you really saw these factors playing around energy and the environment. Sure. There were several. In the governor's race in the state of Iowa, where Chet Culver was victorious, both candidates actually tried to use not just ethanol, the traditional energy issue in Iowa, but wind power and other forms of renewable energy. And for Chet Culver, his positive messaging, it was a significant part. The notion of a brighter future for Iowa with good jobs ending our country's dependence on foreign oil. We saw it significantly there. We saw it played in a positive way by Governor Rendell in Pennsylvania at a critical time in what ended up being a landslide victory. But that was a race that was very close early on. And Governor Rendell made the case correctly that he had done significant steps to invest in renewable energy in the state and also to change many of the vehicles in the state's fleet from regular gas cars to hybrid cars. From your polling, I gather there's a lot of concern about uh, the fractiousness uh, in the political process. How important is a a spirit of bipartisan cooperation uh, to those voters who are concerned about the environment and energy? It's very important. They recognize that this problem will not be solved in a partisan way, that it will only be solved in a bipartisan way. And I think we saw in President Bush's speech a few days ago that this is an issue he understands he can work across party lines on. Whether it will be mere rhetoric or actual policy that requires an investment and and more reliance on alternative energy remains to be seen. But it was one of the few issues he talked about in his speech as an area where he can work with Democrats. So I think the bipartisan component is very important. Your next set of numbers, what are you working on now, your next project? Uh, Well, I think a big part of the focus right now on these issues is how do we take elected officials who ran in to significant degree on alternative energy and convince them to work across party lines to address this issue? I think that's what the environmental community will be focused on. And from a research perspective, we're going to try to investigate what exactly it is they're looking for when it comes to alternative energy. Thank you so much, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Mike Bosian is Associate Vice President of the Greenberg-Quinlan-Rosner Research Firm. 
For a look at the new landscape for the environment and energy in Washington, we turn to two political insiders now. John Podesta was chief of staff for President Bill Clinton and now heads the Center for American Progress. And Sherwood Bollard is the 12-term Republican representative from New York and chair of the House Science Committee. John Podesta, welcome to Living on Earth. How are you today? And Congressman Bollard, hello. It's good to be with you. Representative, it seems like some of the Republicans who did well in this election had a strong environmental message. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Chris Shays uh, survived in Connecticut. So is there a, a message to the Republican Party from those victories? There's quite clearly a message, and there has been year after year. And when I bring it up uh, with my colleagues, there are those who say, what do you get so excited about the environment for? Every time we take a poll, and people in this town take a poll every nanosecond, People are asked an open-ended question. They usually say, in response to what concerns you the most, they'll say the war on terrorism or Iraq or the economy, and way down the list will be the environment. So why do you get so excited about the environment? And I always respond in the same way. I say, well, that's easy to explain. People across the country don't think the policymakers in Washington are going to take leave of their senses and do something that will do damage to the environment. But when something like that is proposed, and it has been, unfortunately, too frequently by some of my colleagues in the past, the phones ring off the hook, the faxes are on overdrive, people send in mail by the ton. They want us to deal responsibly with the environment. What's going to happen with climate change? Are we going to see any caps? And what are the prospects of the White House policy changing? Uh, Mr. Podesta? Well, you know, I'm not particularly hopeful that the president's going to change his views on this. I think that he's, you know, he's long just said that we can rely on voluntary efforts. It's clearer and clearer. The science is just crystal clear that, that the globe is warming at a very rapid rate. And I think you see more and more people in the business community saying it's that we need to create a uh, low carbon or no carbon energy future. And we need to create the right kind of economic incentives, including uh, putting a cap and a cost on carbon pollution in the atmosphere. I think it may take a new president uh, to do that. But my guess is both parties will compete on that question in 2008 election. And, and you've already seen the leading Democratic presidential prospects come out with very aggressive energy policies that include caps on carbon emissions, including Senator Clinton, uh, Senator Obama, and others. Well, John, I want to give you some cause for uh, additional optimism. And I'm an eternal optimist. And I point out to the detractors in my party that even the president of the United States concedes that global warming is for real. I've talked to him about this subject one-on-one. -on -one. And I'll tell your listeners just what I've told him. I said, Mr. President, every time I talk with you on a sensitive issue that might be divisive, like global climate change, I always feel better after talking with you. And then I pause for effect. It's your staff that screws it up. And he usually <laughs>, laughs. But I really do feel that he gets it more than some of his staff people get it. And no president wants to leave after two terms in the White House without a sense that history will treat him well. And this is one area where I think the president has an opportunity to address in a responsible way something that is important to all Americans. And uh, I just have a gut feeling that he's going to do it. So let's talk now about uh, a big Democrat in the House is John Dingell. He's been on the Hill, what, almost 50 years, something like that. It's... Yeah, back in the 1950s. Um, he's in line to get back his committee chairmanship at, at House Energy. Now, in the past, he's opposed fuel efficiency. He's uh, opposed greenhouse gas caps. How much of a stumbling block do you think he'll be uh, for Democrats, for the Congress, in terms of focusing on environmental change and climate change in particular? Uh, John Dingell's been a champion on certain environmental issues, uh, protection of natural resources. Uh, you know, he's a great hunter and he re he loves the land and protects natural resources. He's been strong on the Clean Water Act. Uh, but he also comes from a district that uh, is an auto producing district and has been always worried, I think, about the impact of uh, particularly clean air questions on the auto industry. I think that he understands uh, now that probably one of the most important questions not only facing this country but facing the world is global warming and climate change. And I think you'll see him be active on the energy question and on the climate change question. I, I certainly hope so. You know, I think that he'll be pushed also by the members of his committee who I think have 
gotten both educated on the question and, and will push forward to try to make some real change on that question. So let me ask you, Congressman Bowler, you've worked for many years on Capitol Hill with John Dingell across the aisle, sometimes in the majority, sometimes in the minority. How do you think he's going to be to work with now on the question of, of climate change, global warming, given that he, he does come from you know where they make cars in Michigan? Well, that, that's a big question, Mark. I have the highest regard for John Dingell. In so many areas, I find myself a kindred spirit with him. But I would point out to one and all that he was the 800-pound gorilla in a room that has blocked repeatedly, been the leader of the opposition, to the joint bipartisan effort on CAFE standards. The science is on our side. The technology exists to make more fuel-efficient vehicles today. But quite honestly, our primary opposition from that common-sense approach has come from John Dingell, the auto industry, and I understand no one likes mandates. They don't want to be told by government that they have to do anything. But if we sit back and wait for a voluntary program to trigger in, we'll probably wait throughout eternity. I, I think I'd, I'd just add one point to what, what the congressman said, which is we absolutely need to improve the efficiency of our vehicles, and we also need alternative fuels. And I think there's a lot of bipartisan support in the Congress to try to move towards backing out some of the oils that we do import by really using the science to bring forward uh, cellulosic ethanol and, and new fuels that will, in combination with more efficient vehicles, could take a huge dent out of both the imported oil and the security concerns that go with it and also really reduce our greenhouse gases. Some would say that what's happening in Washington on this question is uh, kind of agreeing to collude uh, to the oil addiction. I mean, the president said uh, we're addicted to oil, but so far, responding to the problem of addiction to oil from really both sides of the aisle kind of looks like, you know, two alcoholics saying, gee, this is really bad for my liver and ordering another <laughs> scotch. Well, maybe I'll take that one first. You know, I think that the congressman is, I think, rightfully said that both parties, or, or at least some leaders in both parties, uh, have been impediments to raising cafe standards. When I was in the White House working for President Clinton, when we tried to do that, there were constantly riders put into appropriations bills that blocked uh, our ability to do it, and that was bipartisan in its support. But I think things have changed, and I think that you see more leadership. Uh, I like to think it's from our, my party, but I think that we really need it from both parties to really move forward on this and to kind of break down the special interests uh, hammerlock that particularly the oil companies have, you know, on the Congress in the past and on this administration. I, I'm very optimistic as I look forward, not because of the election results. I'm a little bit disappointed uh, that the Democrats are back in the majority and my fellow Republicans are back in the minority. But the principal message out of the election of 2006 was that the American people are sort of fed up with the polarization and the lack of consideration for another point of view. And what they're saying to those of us in Washington is sort of come together, agree on the problems, and then try to develop a consensus solution. Don't just talk about it. Do something. I want to thank you both. Sherwood Bollert is the outgoing Republican representative from New York's 24th district, where he served 12 terms without ever being defeated because you chose retirement, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you. And John Podesta is president of the Center for American Progress and formerly chief of staff for President Bill Clinton. Thank you, sir. Great to be with you. And, and Congressman, thank you for your service. Thank you so much. Washington is home to an army of lobbyists who champion everything from environmental protection to free markets. Two approaches, by the way, that are often at odds. But the trends linked to this year's elections seem to have shaken some of those predictable lineups, as well as the legislative majorities. Joining us to discuss climate change and the changing political climate is Stephen Hayward, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a free market-oriented think tank. He writes AEI's Environmental Policy Outlook. Welcome to Living on Earth, Mr. Hayward. Good to be here. And from San Francisco, Carl Pope. He's executive director of the Sierra Club. It's the nation's oldest and largest grassroots environmental organization. Welcome, Mr. Pope. It's great to be back. Uh, Carl Pope, let me ask you specifically, over the next two years with a Democratic majority in the House, with a razor-thin Democratic majority in the Senate, what happens in terms of climate change at the federal level from your perspective, and what would you like to see happen? Well, let me distinguish between what happens on climate change and what happens on the things that help solve climate change. 
I think we're likely to see some substantial forward progress, at least in the House, perhaps in both houses, on renewable energy and efficiency. I think that is a part of the agenda that is not as controversial and that I was going around the country this year, you saw all over the country, you saw political ads featuring wind turbines. So I think we'll see some substantial forward progress, at least in Congress, and I hope the president will go along, on renewable energy. I think on the question of an ultimate national climate change policy, the House may pass a strong piece of legislation. The Senate, I think, with the 60-vote rule is unlikely to do so. I think the remaining global warming deniers in the Senate will be willing to filibuster anything meaningful that establishes an umbrella national policy on global warming. So my guess is we don't actually see that happen. But you might well see a bill pass the House. Uh, Henry Waxman has a good bill in. And of course, there's now the California bill, which was signed by a Republican governor to serve as a bipartisan model, which is somewhat different than Waxman's bill. So I think you'll see some real action in the House. But what I really want to see is some real action in both houses on the solutions to global warming, especially the relatively non-controversial solutions like efficiency and renewables. Stephen Hayward, uh, administration really has played down uh, the need to respond to the threat of global warming. So how much do you think the administration might move its position in light of, of these election results? Uh, well, I, there was an interesting straw in the wind two or three months ago, uh, reported by Mike Allen in Time magazine that raised a lot of eyebrows and generated a lot of buzz in Washington. Mike Allen reported that he was talking to a senior White House official who said that Bush was getting ready to do a 180 on climate change and described it as, uh, in the old cliche, a Nixon to China moment, where the actual quote that appeared was, only two oil men could get all the players to the table, including the oil and auto industry, and broker some large and grand compromise on this. And I've heard separately from people who have uh, you know, had casual uh, lunches or dinners with Bush recently that one of the things he's changed his mind about was the environmental issues. And I've asked for details, and people said we were mostly there to talk about Iraq, and so we didn't ask for details. Now, this has been uh, controverted by a number of you know, named people at the White House saying, no, this is an exaggeration. It bears the hallmarks of possibly a trial balloon by a faction, perhaps, in the White House trying to push things this way. But there's still some thought that you may be seeing some large uh, initiative proposed in the State of the Union address next year. And if that's the case, then it might be a whole new ball game. We'll continue our conversation with Stephen Hayward and Carl Pope in just a moment. Keep listening to Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. enjoy listening to Living on Earth, chances are you have some pretty good ideas about things the program should cover. Good news, bad news, or just plain interesting, if you think it would make a worthwhile story for the radio, please get in touch. You can zap us an email at comments at loe.org or call the Living on Earth listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or write 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. You're listening to Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International.
It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. Back now to our post-election conversation with Carl Pope from the Sierra Club and Steve Hayward from the American Enterprise Institute. So uh, let's turn now to the nuclear industry. Some environmentalists have joined industry saying we should give nuclear power another look because of climate change and greenhouse gases. Uh, Carl Pope, what kind of traction do you think that's going to get in this Congress, and uh, what kind of traction do you think it should get? Well, if somebody wants to build a nuclear power plant with their own money, God bless them. Uh, Nobody does. Everybody wants to build nuclear power plants with somebody else's money, usually the American taxpayers. I mean, the subsidies contained in the last congressional energy bill were so bad that the Wall Street Journal denounced them and the Bush administration declined to support them. So I think that the difficulty with nuclear power is you can make it safe, then it's not cheap. You can make it cheap, then it's not safe. And so far, so far, but I'm an agnostic on the future. Nobody's figured out a way to do both. But at the same time, we shouldn't throw all of our investment dollars in things which don't show much sign of penciling out economically when we have a ton of stuff in the efficiency and renewable areas that is extremely promising economically and in many cases would be happening in the free market if government wasn't getting in the way. Steve probably even agrees with that. Well, Steve Hayward, let me ask you, uh, you your organization, the American Enterprise Institute, looks to market-based solutions wherever possible. Um, What about the argument that uh, maybe nuclear would be okay as long as the private markets do it? Yeah, Carl's right. I am in substantial agreement with him. In fact, I uh, you know, passed around the op-ed article he wrote with Ed Crane in the Washington Post a couple of years ago saying, let's have a level playing field for all energy technologies and get rid of uh, all the subsidies. That deal, that, um, deal, that deal is still on the table. Well, see, uh, by the way, I mean, this is uh, I, I tell people and my environmentalists and liberal friends, this shows uh, in some respects our essential powerlessness of our two different camps, that uh, we can't seem to push that very far down the field, uh, because we, we could get together on that one. I do think if we go to, as I think ought to be thought about, a carbon tax down the road as a way of leveling the energy playing field and adjusting our energy portfolio in this country, then the economics of nuclear power and other alternative energies begins to change quite a bit. I mean, uh, Carl's right about nuclear subsidies. I was against them, still am against them. But some alternative energy, like wind power he just mentioned, also has some pretty large subsidies and tax breaks. So, uh, yeah, I I think I could reach a a large agreement with Carl that we ought to get rid of all these things and try and level the playing field and stop a lot of the special interest gaming of this business. And what I hear from you is a new new tax, a carbon tax. Yeah, I don't think either party is going to go there. Uh, Democrats will be afraid of being, you know, the tax uh, accusation from Republicans, and they're always right to be. And I don't think Republicans are going to lead with that either. But a lot of economists will tell you that that would be the best way forward on this issue. And so I think a few years down the road that may unfold. So let me ask you about uh, this. By can I can I can I just really reach across the ether <laughs> to shake? His hand. I completely agree. If we're not careful, though, you guys are going to get together and start singing Kumbaya or something. How can this prevail in the halls of Congress? What are your plans to, in fact, have the Congress come together where there is consensus, say, around renewable energy and such, uh, the need to address these issues, and have something that comes out as a product of consensus rather than, you know, the bloodied remains? Hey, I'm the executive director of the Sierra Club, not Plato's philosopher king. <laughs> I don't think I know how to do that. More seriously, though, what's interesting is what's happening at the state level. You are seeing at the states. I mean, it is a remarkable thing that it is easier for, and frankly, the Sierra Club, which is, is not very popular in Idaho, but it is actually easier for us to walk into the Idaho legislature and sit down with the Republican caucus in the Idaho legislature and talk common sense about energy then frankly it is to talk with either party in Washington, D.C. There is something profoundly broken at the federal level that is not profoundly broken at the local and state level. And I'm not sure I have the precise answer about why, but I think the solutions to what ails Washington lie in trying to understand what is the dynamic that enables states as disparate as California and Georgia to work out these issues in a relatively nonpartisan way with very different local politics. And yet the same thing cannot seem to happen in Washington. Uh, Well, we don't have a national climate policy we can point to with bullet points saying we're doing 
X, Y, and Z. But there's a lot going on. Carl pointed to some things on the state and local level, which I think part of that is show, but part of it is real. And then you have a lot of industries taking the lead, trying to become more energy efficient for their own purposes. So I'm actually more optimistic than uh, a lot of the uh, sort of gloomier projections that the curves are going to start bending in a more favorable direction a lot faster than people think. Stephen Hayward is resident scholar of the American Enterprise Institute. Carl Pope is executive director of the Sierra Club. Thank you both, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Thank you. If you were to look up in a tree and see a kangaroo, you might jump out of your skin in surprise. What's a kangaroo doing in a tree? Well, if it's a tree kangaroo, it's probably making itself right at home. Not much is known about the elusive tree kangaroo, but scientist Lisa Dobick hopes to change that. She's been researching these teddy bear-like tree climbers and working to conserve the ancient forests of Papua New Guinea that one species of these high-altitude marsupials calls home. On her last field expedition, Lisa Dobbitt brought along author Cy Montgomery. Cy wrote a children's book about their adventure called Quest for the Tree Kangaroo. Cy and Lisa, welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Cy, what's the tree kangaroo look like? Oh, my gosh. It, it looks like something that Dr. Seuss would have made up if he was working with the manufacturer of stuffed toys. <laughs> it is just the most adorable thing you've ever seen. It has these pert, upright ears. It has a, a white snout with a lovely little pink nose. Um, it has a long golden tail, and it has a lemon yellow or white belly and great big, sweet eyes. Unbelievably cute. And it's about the size of a great big raccoon. Sai, when you first went into the cloud forest where these uh, tree kangaroos are at home, what was it like? What did you see? What is one of these cloud forests like? Oh, man, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous place. I I like to tell people it's like what heaven would look like if heaven had leeches. Um, it's <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and who knows? Maybe they do. Uh, first of all, to get there, this is the most remote place I've ever been in in my life in all the expeditions I've ever done. We had to hike for three days up into the cloud forest, up to 10,000 feet, where the forest is just shrouded in mist. It feels like a mystical magic magical place. And all the great trees are covered in moss. And the moss is laced with ferns. And there's great big vines hanging from everything, thick with moss. There's orchids growing out of the trees. There's rhododendrons growing out of the trees. Some of the flowers are huge and showy, and some of them are small as a dressmaker's pin. And it looks just like the kind of place where you'd expect some hobbit or some troll to step out. (laughs) But better than that, look who's there, kangaroos in the trees. Now, Lisa, these guys are hard to see, I mean, let alone monitor or track. What do we know about tree kangaroos, and, and what have you learned in studying them? Well, what we do know is that they are kangaroos. They're in the kangaroo family. They have pouches like regular kangaroos but they live in the trees, and really nothing was known about them. But from the work that we've been doing in Papua New Guinea, we now know how they use the forest, how much forest they need to eat and to move around to find their mates. We're learning a lot of different things. Lisa, how do you catch an animal that's hard to see? And looking at the book that you guys put together in the photographs, seems to be perfectly happy at 85 feet up in the air. I know. It's amazing. The villagers, the hunters, spot them, and then they cut down the brush underneath the tree, and they surround the tree. And then one of the men climbs a neighboring tree and starts making noise to frighten the animal. And then the animal, when it wants to get away, it can leap down and as far as 80 feet. And once the animal lands on the ground, then the the hunters can grab the tail of the animal. Ouch. So I would not be able to do that. <laughs> now, you get the locals to help you catch them, and then what do you do once you've caught a tree kangaroo? Well, we have a team of researchers, and we take blood samples, measurements of the animals, and then we put radio collars 
on them to really get a good handle on the home range of the animals because that's going to determine how much forest we really need to protect for healthy populations of animals. And then we're also trying to um, get a good handle on their feeding ecology. So far, we've documented that they eat over 90 species of plants. So we put the radio collars on, but we're also these blood samples and fecal samples. We're able to look at the genetics of tree kangaroos. And that's really important because very little is known about the taxonomy and the classification of tree kangaroos. There was a new tree kangaroo species um, that was discovered in 1995, so only 10 years ago. And for a large mammal, that's pretty exciting. Now, Sai, from your visit there, how, how do the people of New Guinea view the tree kangaroos? Well, they think, until Lisa told them, that everyone has tree kangaroos. That's why they thought she was kind of nutty to want to see them. And they were thrilled to discover that they were the lucky ones, the only people in the world to have the species that Lisa studies, the matches. It only lives on one peninsula, on one half of this one island in the whole world. Animals like this often have some folklore about them. What's something special that, that folks there believe, maybe a myth, about the tree kangaroo? Well, they obviously think that tree kangaroos have some kind of special power because there's one belief that if you think of the girl that you love before you let your arrow fly to shoot a tree kangaroo, at the moment the arrow pierces the animal's body, that's when she will fall madly in love with you. Oh, my. That makes it tough on the tree kangaroos. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's really a pretty rotten Valentine's Day gift for them. <laughs> <laughs> um, Lisa, what are the major challenges facing the tree kangaroo in terms of conservation? Um, in this area, it's mainly over hunting. And that's why we can work with the local hunters um, to talk about sustainable resources. Because with them agreeing to set aside portions of land um, that are safe for the animals to breed and then disperse, they actually can have a sustainable resource. In other areas of New Guinea, it's logging and mining, so basically the destruction of the tree kangaroo's habitat. What do you hope this book accomplishes, Sai? Well, a couple of things. I mean, first, it's a great adventure story about real science. This is like a National Geographic expedition. You know, 44 people from three continents, including quite a few local people, hiking for three days up into a totally unknown place to study an animal about which almost nothing is known. That's just a great adventure story that makes science exciting to kids. And Lisa's a great heroine. I mean, she's a fabulous scientist, and a thing that few people know but will after they read this book about her is that even though she's working at 10,000 feet in this very strenuous environment, she has asthma and has not let that stop her. She also didn't let it stop her when other scientists said that what she wanted to do would never work. So that's a great lesson for kids. Another thing, because she's amassed this large team of people from all over the world, some of us bring to this job talents you wouldn't think could help conservation. So whatever talent you have, you can bring this to help the world remain whole. But the one thing, of course, I really want to get across the most, and you know this very well, Steve, is that all of my books are really love stories. And these animals, you look at them, and immediately you just lose your heart. You love them. You cannot help but want to know that they're going to be surviving halfway around the world. Even if you never even visit a zoo, you want to know that they're continuing to survive in this fairy tale, beautiful habitat of the cloud forest of Papua New Guinea. Thank you both for being with me. Thanks, Steve. It was great. Thank you so much. Lisa Dobick is a scientist who's worked with tree kangaroos in Papua New Guinea. And Cy Montgomery is the author of the book Quest for the Tree Kangaroo. To see photos of the tree kangaroo by Nick Bishop, go to our website, www.loe.org.
Next week on Living on Earth, a mother reflects on how her family lost their Vermont sheep farm to government efforts to prevent the spread of mad cow disease. I am extremely grateful for the opportunity to have had a farm. And I won't, I won't let USDA take that away. A farmer's struggle for justice or the government's right to protect on the next Living on Earth. We leave you this week with the calls of our national symbol. The bald eagle was declared the official emblem of the United States in 1782. The raptor was listed as endangered in the lower 48 states in the late 1970s, but has since made a remarkable comeback due to the ban on DDT, as well as protections under the Endangered Species Act. Bernie Krause recorded this fledgling bald eagle learning to fish for salmon near Glacier Bay in Alaska. You can hear our program anytime on our website or get a download for your MP3 player. The address is LOE.org. That's LOE.org. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And you can call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. CDs and transcripts are $15. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Tobin Hack, Ingrid Lobet, Emily Taylor, and Jeff Young, with help from Bobby Bascom and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Ian Gray and Jennifer Percy. Dennis Foley is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Park Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. PRI, Public Radio International.